Hello, and welcome to episode 77, Crying Behavior and Dementia. This is a replay of June's webinar for Dementia Education and Support. I will be having these webinars every month, and the links to the schedule are below. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. When thinking about how to handle a crying behavior, it also helps to have some knowledge of the person's pre-dementia personality. Under what circumstances did they cry? For example, in some cultures, women are not allowed to show anger. They're allowed to be angry. They're not allowed to show it. So what they may do is instead of showing behaviors for which they will get negative feedback, they instead may express anger through crying, which is seen as an acceptable emotion for women to display. And if your loved one may have been reared in an environment in which it was unacceptable for a woman to show angry behaviors, they may have defaulted to crying as a way to express anger. So that is something to think about. If the individual has always struggled with, say, depression, pre-dementia, the crying may be a signifier, it may be a sign that their, de- their depression is not being adequately handled. Crying can mean many different things. And when I was raising my kids, and again, this is not meant to infantilize people living with dementia, because I could use this same example with my dog. My dog has a frightened bark. She has a protective growl. She has a playful growl. She has a range of doggy behaviors that she can express. And I may notice the behavior, especially the more subtle behaviors, more than somebody who's meeting her for the first time because we spend a lot of time together. You may notice that your loved one may have different types of crying depending on what the emotion is. I've had individuals who I've spent time with and their family members said to me, oh, they cry all the time. They must be depressed. And I realized watching them and interacting with me with them is sometimes the crying was a way to show frustration. And if that frustration was handled, the crying immediately stopped or it was out of fatigue. If it's out of fatigue or fear, 
when you address the underlying emotion, they will literally stop the crying on a dime. And it doesn't mean they're faking it. It just means that the way their brains are wired and the way the dementia is screwing with the wiring, that they may be the emotion, the behavior that you see as crying, the quality and the duration of the crying may differ according to the emotion. I worked recently with a woman who her family described as having like hours and hours of crying. And when I interacted with her and she would start to cry, sometimes it was, she would say, I'm so tired. I want to go home. And then she'd start to cry, but I noticed no tears were coming. And when I changed the topic, the crying behavior immediately stopped. She wasn't faking it. It was just the way her brain was wired and it helps to know or to see if you can associate the crying behavior with different emotions, because that is something I've observed in the clinical setting and also with working with individuals who are in nursing homes. So how do you do that? I know this is going to sound like a major pain in the butt, but you would need to have seven days of your usual schedule. So this may not want to be something you tackle on Mother's Day weekend if there's a lot of activities that differs. And you don't need anything fancy. It could be a scrap of paper where you write the date, you know, Monday, May 8th, and cried at 6.30 when I woke her up and told her she had to get dressed. What else was going on? What part of the day? What were the circumstances? What is the person or what was the person saying and or doing prior to the crying episode? Because I also noticed with some people living with dementia, if there is hesitancy to do something, to do an activity or to go to a doctor's visit, some of that is fear because they're afraid to go and interact because they may know that their memory isn't what it used to be and they don't want to be judged. They don't want people to think they're odd or unusual. So there may be some fear with going to doctor or medical visits. And I also noticed that when the person is crying to avoid something, that is usually the one that is the crying that is most redirectable. Because you can say something like, okay, I know you're upset, we still have to go. Or, I know you don't like going to this appointment, but we'll go to IHOP afterwards. And if you, I've had people put the focus on, hey, we're going to go to IHOP after we go here. And it sounds a little cruel because the person's, oh, cool, IHOP or whatever restaurant you go to or wherever you, whatever's your favorite place. And, but if, I think if you put the positive first, we're going to go to this place after we get done the appointment, that can sometimes change the mood a bit. 
also to be aware if specific memories or names trigger the crying. Many people will note that the crying may tend to occur in the afternoon. And that's a combination of fatigue and with the fatigue, having trouble, like your acetylcholine is dropping. So your ability to access some memories is less vibrant than it is to access other memories. So that seems to be when people want to, quote, go home. And they're usually talking about the home they were born in, the home they were raised in. And they're looking around and they're like, this isn't my home because they're unable to recognize the setting that they're in and connect the visual with that memory because of a drop in brain chemicals and fatigue. You may notice that many of us tend to get sluggish between say two and four in the afternoon or one and three, depending on how early you get up. And one of the ways to counteract that fatigue is by taking a 20 to 30 minute nap or some people will go and exercise as a way to get through that dip in many of our hormones and in many of our neurotransmitters. People also have a drop in a lot of their neurotransmitters and different body chemicals around three o'clock in the morning, two, three o'clock in the morning. And I sometimes wonder if the chemical changes, especially with day-night confusion, if people are if they're not sleeping well, if they're having some of these drops in their chemistries in at three o'clock in the afternoon instead of three o'clock in the morning. So that may also be part of the crying, some day-night disruption. And with specific memories or names, I got a little off there, with specific memories or names, you may notice that if they've, they may start to talk about a parent. I really, I want to see my mom. I miss my mom. And they may start to cry. Or the other thing that they may do, and if you've turned your camera on, just be aware that your image will be appearing when I have the, when I upload the recording to my Facebook page. So for those of you who have their camera, there you go. Okay. I should have warned everybody that in the beginning. But when specific memories or names trigger the crying, there are, there, there are some scripts you can use that I'll share pretty much starting now. One of the things is important is you do not want whatever individual or combination trigger that is causing the crying episode to get to the point where the person is sobbing uncontrollably and they can know the crying is no longer unstoppable. And that can happen when anger, any of the emotions just get so out of control that it's hard to stop the flow. And an analogy for that is if I have a very... If I have a drippy faucet, if I tighten it enough, I can usually stop the drip. But sometimes the washers around 
the faucets become so worn down that even when I have the handle turned all the way off, I'm still having a decent stream of water coming out of the tap. And the analogy is you want to catch this when it's a like a drip versus when it's both faucets are open at the same time. It's coming out to that point. And you may have noticed the QR code on all of the slides. For those of you who are attending and you're maybe not getting the newsletter or you want to be on the newsletter, you can scan that code with your camera and it'll take you to the website where you can put in your name and your email to be on the email list for alerts about webinars or anything that I'm doing. If Now, frustration can be due to a task such as using the remote or trying to engage in self-care or trying to do a hobby, or it can be due to what is called to speech problems, what is called aphasia, which is a fancy word for having problems speaking or understanding. If doing a task is the source of the frustration, it helps to use to support the person doing the task through cues. Okay, you do this next. Or gestures. Do it this way and you gesture it or pantomime. You want to simplify as much as possible. So let's say the two of you cook together and that's been a thing you've always done. And your partner is now having more problems with scrambling the eggs or making the muffins. And you're helping them do small tasks like here, add this half a cup of sugar to the batter. And instead of them taking the measuring cup and going toward the sugar bowl, they may be going to the salt. And instead of saying, that's, no, not the salt, the sugar, you could say, oops, my bad, that is salt. I meant to give you the sugar. Here you go. When you minimize corrections, because I know, and I've said it, I've said don't correct the person, but sometimes they're doing something so blatantly wrong and it is going to affect more than just themselves or maybe a safety thing that you do have to correct. And if you do have to make a correction, I prefer to put myself at fault. Turn the focus on you. Oh, I, I gave you the wrong thing. Here, here's the sugar, my mistake. This way, you're correcting the problem, but you're not telling them they screwed up or you made a mistake or it's your fault. Because when, when we hear, oh, you made a mistake, the first thing we think of, I mean, we, can, we may get defensive. No, I didn't, especially if I don't remember that I made the mistake. Or we may start to feel bad, oh, I'm not good for anything. And some of that catastrophizing behavior where it's all or none, everything is a major deal. Usually people had a little bit of that or a lot of that pre-dementia and the dementia can just magnify that way of coping with situations. I'm going to take a quick break 
And then I will return with how word finding can also be part of the frustration experienced by a person living with dementia. If word finding is the source of the frustration, if the person is struggling with aphasia and there's the type of aphasia where they're having trouble make, retrieving and making the words, and there's another type of aphasia where the speech is very fluid, but it's what we call word salad. It's all these random words, or they appear random, but if you listen to the person enough, you may start to notice that they use certain words in substitution for a certain emotion or feeling or concept. Or you may have someone who uses it or thing for every single noun, so you're having trouble making sense. So if the person is having halting speech, if they're struggling to come up with the word, allow time to let the individual put together his or her words. And I will tell you, that is often very challenging for the caregiver because you, you have things to do. You're on a schedule and it feels like you're waiting 20 minutes for them to come up with the word. You're probably only waiting 30 seconds, but it feels like an hour and a half. And I feel it in office visits where I only have 40 minutes and I want to give the person living with dementia time to tell me their story, but I'm operating in a confined time-limited environment. So I do my best to allow the individual to put together his or her words, but there are situations when that's not feasible. And that, that then that option, you could reflect back and say, I think you're, you want to ask me about this problem or you want to ask me about and put in whatever it is they're asking you about, or I think you're telling me that you feel frustrated. So it's okay to reflect back what you think they're trying to tell you. And for people who take a long time to produce the word, do you finish the words or sentences for them? It depends. If it doesn't bother them and they seem relieved, sure. If it ticks them off, then you want to minimize or don't do that practice or reflect back. I think you're asking me to pass the butter. And I'll go, yeah, because you're not saying, oh, you, or you could say, oh, do you want the butter? But you're not finishing the, if they're saying, I want, oh, you want the butter. These are slight differences, but there's a difference between finishing the words and sentences or reflecting back. So you can go between both and see which one works for your situation. And to offer support. I know you have the words in your brain, but they are not coming out and I'm here for you. Now, what if the person does produce words but and sounds, but it's a word salad and it doesn't seem to make any sense? Sometimes, especially with people I've worked with for a period of time, like someone I've seen multiple times in the nursing home and I've interacted with on an almost daily basis, I will start to decipher their language. I will know that certain words may mean certain things for them. Totally unrelated. It's just you 
start to figure it out. And for those of you who have family members who speak in that garbled word salad, that's called fluent aphasia, where they say a lot of words, but there's very little meaning. You may notice a pattern too, when you put together the context, the facial expressions and what's coming out of their mouth. And they may even say certain syllables when they're happy versus when they're angry or sad. And that's where it's just important to decode the behavior with your loved one. Anger usually follows frustration, especially if being told no. The OKN strategy, I'm at the point where I use that with people who are in my work environment when they try to micromanage or want to hand me or I say dump several tasks on my plate. I go, okay, you want me to do this and this. And I look at them and then they realize, oh, I'm asking her to do two things. And usually we can communicate from there. But if your loved one is saying, I want to go home, I want to go home. This is a place where you can say, okay, I'm hearing you want to go home or okay, you want to go home. What do you like best about home? And see if you can get them to speak, to reminisce and usually you can go from home to maybe different people to different favorite family stories. And you can lead that conversation. What I liked best about home, I loved the sunsets on our porch. Yes, we had a lot of parties on that porch. Do you remember the time when, you know, Aunt fell down the stairs? That's not a good one. We, well, we had a party and we locked ourselves out and we had to crawl in through the window. Or, yes, do you remember dad's 80th birthday and this is what we did and it was so cool. So there are ways to take them on a journey of reminiscence where you acknowledge whatever it is they're feeling, but you want to direct it into more positive memories. And then there's fear. When people are crying out of fear, I find that you are safe, you are at the right place, you are doing the right thing is the best approach. And I completely stumbled on this by trial and error because I was doing a research study in nursing homes that involved us coming in very early in the morning and helping people brush their teeth and also taking samples of the plaque in their mouths for analysis. So this was a study that had a lot of different pieces and we were in a room and we were working with a person involved in the study and as much as we were trying to be very quiet and not putting on lights and, and being very respectful, we accidentally woke up the roommate who sat straight up in bed and started to wail. And the CNA came into the room and tore us apart. I can't believe you woke her, woke her up. Now she's going to, when she wakes up early, she screams and I'm going to have to, she's going to wake up the whole 
you know, floor and it's your fault. Without thinking, I sat on the bed next to her and I put my arms around her to comfort her and I started rocking a little bit and I said to her, you're safe, I'm here, it's okay. And she immediately stopped crying and I, I hugged her and I rocked her for a few more minutes. Unknownst to me, the entire research team, which also was composed of undergraduate nursing students, were all gathered around the front front of the room because they heard the commotion and they came running in to see what was going on. And here I am. And they were astounded when they saw me console the individual. And she literally calmed down and we I tucked her in. I left the room sound asleep. No Haldol, no other psychotropics. I hugged her, rocked her, told her she was safe. And I had a nursing student, and I really wish I could reconnect with that individual, but she told me she was going for pediatrics, and after watching me, she changed. She decided to go into geriatrics, and she completely changed her focus on what she wanted to do, and I thought that was really cool. So if you are listening and you are the nursing student, Drop me an email because I didn't think I, I was just trying not to get yelled at by the CNA. I'll be honest with you. And I just felt bad for the woman screaming. So I have used this technique even with people who don't know me from Adam's house cat and it has worked. Sadness. Some people living with dementia, especially early and middle in the journey in the mild to moderate stages, may recall their losses and stay stuck in that loop. So someone who experiences the loss of a parent or a sibling, they get like stuck in the grieving process where it's every day is day one of grieving. And it's really hard because some of the reason for that loop is the changes in the brain. So some of the approaches you could take is, hey, hon, I know you lost your dad last month. Let's say a prayer for him and then do something you like. And I know that's a long sentence, but there's a couple components. That acknowledgement, I know you're feeling sad. I know you miss your father. And then doing something. Let's say a prayer for him, or oh, let's have a glass of wine in his honor, or let's have a moment of silence, or let's go, we'll go to the cemetery later, or let's do something that's super simple, and then when we're done, let's do something pleasurable for you. Those are the three things, acknowledgement and action, for the grief, and then something positive for the person living with dementia. Now, one question I get a lot is the loss of pets. I hate to say it, but I am closer to Amira and my cats, including the two new kittens I adopted two weeks ago, than I am to than I am with members of my own family. Okay, the animals are easier to get along with. 
and I'm also in proximity to these animals. So there's going to come, Amira is celebrating her third birthday on May 22nd. And I realized that I probably have a decade left with her. So 10 years from now, I'm going to be super sad when she crosses that rainbow bridge. It's going to suck. And I have a cat, Gandalf, who's 15. And I know his days are limited, especially as old as he is. But saying that, losing a pet is traumatic. And in some situations, one grieves in a way one would grieve for a family member. I remember being told when I suffered the loss of a pet, it's not like it was a member of the family, and I'm thinking, yeah, it was. So the question I get is to replace or not to replace. Well, I think if you can handle the responsibilities of a new pet, and the person living with dementia is at a place where they could, this would be good for them, this would be a type of interaction, they could still help. You're not doing everything for the person living with dementia, you're doing some support. That could definitely be an option to replace, either with an older dog that you adopt from the shelter, or a puppy, or a kitten, whatever, a parrot, whatever it is that you want to replace. But if replacing a pet or adopting a new member of the family, if that is not an option for whatever reasons, then what can you do to provide animal interaction? My daughter, Sarah, when she has a rough day at work, she will stop by for kitten therapy, where she goes upstairs, sits in the room where the kittens are currently living, because I'm not letting them have the full run of the house yet. I let them sit in my office for an hour this morning to get them out of there so I could air out and clean their living area. And they were still in the office when I had a Zoom meeting, and that was the most fun team meeting we've had in a long time. The kittens were crawling up the chair, crawling behind me on the wall. They were fun. So Sarah may decide to come over and sit upstairs and get kitten therapy and have them run all over her and play with them and watch them because they are hilarious. So you know, what options are available for animal interaction? Maybe there's a family member that you visit for some dog or cat time. Maybe you go to PetSmart and look at the animals that are up for adoption, but that can be dangerous because you may walk home with one. So I say that with caution. If you're dealing, if your loved one is dealing with mild dementia, maybe you could volunteer together to take care of animals at a shelter. And sometimes you're better off going with a smaller, maybe private shelter or a smaller 301C shelter than the county shelter, because the county shelter may have more restrictions and more rules. 
that or, or it's just too much to handle where a smaller place may not have as many volunteers and it may be a situation that fits the personality of your family member so it's just a matter of brainstorming what other substitutes you can put in for say a missed pet or if somebody moves out of the house and your loved one living with dementia is really missing them what other options do you have what activities did they enjoy pre-dementia that can also help with sadness and how can you adapt these activities to be acceptable and pleasurable but without adding to frustration or without adding too much complexity to that activity. So for outings, you want to go to places during off hours or out. you want to go to outdoor situations to avoid overwhelm. One neat way of getting nature, especially if you don't have access to parks or you need something that's wheelchair accessible, is the garden section of hardware stores, especially the bigger ones. There are some hardware stores and or nurseries. The problem with nurseries is they tend to be on uneven ground and it may be difficult to maneuver your family member if they're in a wheelchair around nurseries. But if you can find a nursery that you and your family member can walk around almost like your own botanical garden. That's awesome. The garden section of hardware stores are nice because you can walk around and take your time and look at all the stuff. And no one tends to harass you at those places. And you can all, and then you can leave without, you don't have to pay admission and you can just enjoy it. Some people really like to work out and exercise, but they may stop going to the Y or their favorite place because of the issue with changing and locker rooms. Many of your rec centers and Ys that cater to families are developing family changing rooms, which are smaller private areas where you can help your loved one getting in and out of clothing, like in and out of a bathing suit, or you can arrive already attired in your workout gear. So you, it's a way to look at the environment and talk about ways to make it more dementia friendly. I've had family members start to talk to the managers of the exercise facility where they go and say, look, I still want to come here with my husband, my wife, my, my dad, my parent, my, in some cases, it may be a child, an adult child who's having memory issues and saying, we want to come here together, but these are the challenges we're facing. What do you recommend? And I've had reports about family members 
really experiencing some good acceptance and some good problem solving at some of these facilities. Now, the next question I get is, can you just prescribe something? Yes, it is reasonable to add antidepressants such as sertraline, Zoloft, or I should have had or there, or citalopram, Celexa, which these are the SSRIs. These are the drugs that increase the amount of serotonin floating around in the brain. And even if the person didn't have depression pre-dementia, these medicines can help because when you are losing neurons, all of your neurotransmitters are the balance is getting completely messed up because you have neurons that make neurotransmitters and you have neurons that break them down and recycle them to make fresh amounts of neurotransmitters throughout the day. And when you add some of these meds, you are reducing the breakdown temporarily so that more of that neurotransmitter, the serotonin can float around in the brain and help and they feel people feel better when there's more more serotonin when there's more balance it's also reasonable to add a class called acetylcholinesterase inhibitors for the appropriate dementias there are some dementias such as frontotemporal dementia when we're using this type of medication historically has not been effective. However, there are people who have a combination of dementia. So they may have they may have Alzheimer's or they may have Parkinson's disease dementia in which one of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors is appropriate. So that's something to talk to whichever specialist is working with you and your family member. You do want to avoid a class called benzodiazepines. It, these are meds that the generic name usually ends in AM, alprazolam, lorazepam. Alprazolam is Xanax, lorazepam is Ativan. Benzodiazepines as a class have their place but not really with people living with dementia, and here's why. These meds can make memory worse than it already is, predispose people to dizziness, and predispose people to falling, which can result in a broken hip or some other traumatic injury. Now, I know someone's listening to this saying, but... My family member takes X amount of Xanax or Ativan and they're doing fine. Great. But if your person is taking these medicines and they're crying all the times, all the time, well, these medicines act as a type of depressive, even though they're used as a short term way to handle anxiety they can also make people feel sadder they are also they can also have some depressant aspect 
and that may be making the crying spells worse. Benzodiazepines also break down one's control of emotions much the way alcohol may do the same thing. So if your loved one is getting enough of this medication and it may be building up in their system, that can also reduce their ability to control themselves. And that may be making the crying behavior rise to the surface so much easier. So what I'm saying is, if your loved one is already taking these meds, you do not stop benzodiazepines cold turkey. You have to wean them off. And you need to talk to whoever is prescribing that medicine and have a heart-to-heart about the benefits and the risks. And here's the thing. if that Now, sometimes people were experiencing some anxiety and the clinician thought that the crying was due to anxious behavior. So if I get rid of the anxious behavior, they'll stop crying. Not always in dementia land. In some situations, I've seen the benzos make crying behavior worse because it seems to lower the threshold for them to demonstrate that behavior. I'm not saying it causes it. I'm saying it's causing differences in the brain that just if I have too many glasses of wine, I may say something or do something that I would not have done if I were sober and my judgment and my all my cognitive faculties were working. I take Xanax or Ativan or benzodiazepine in sufficient doses and my ability to regulate, my ability to function in a way I would function if I didn't have these meds on board could be different. And okay, that concludes the presentation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm Rita Jablonski and I was your host. If you look at the show notes, you will see a schedule for all of the monthly free dementia education and support webinars. The next one is July 10th. I usually have it the first Monday of each month, but if there's a holiday involved, I'll move it around. So the schedule can be found on the website, dementiacentricsolutions.com, or you can click it in the show notes. My Make Dementia Your B Facebook page also has the schedule. If you've been listening to these podcasts and you are interested in working with me directly, please email me at rita.jablonski at gmail.com and I would love to talk to you to see how we could benefit by working together. I've had a lot of success with other individuals and families. In fact, most of the time, we achieve enough success in one session that people are able to go forth and manage the behaviors without a second session. Other times there might be a second or third session, but these sessions occur with months in between. And that's a good thing 
because that tells me I am targeting what people need, what families need, and we are addressing the issues. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you at the next webinar or talking with you at the next podcast. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.